We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking about uh, MLS's return to home markets and the quote-unquote regular season uh, resuming. We're talking about Pirlo and Pulisic and Zidane and Champions League and salary caps and Chicharito and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, August 10th in the year 2020? I am doing very, very well. Very, very well. Really? Well, that puts you in the minority relative to most other people on the planet. As we Is that continue. overly enthusiastic well, for the times we live in? No, it was okay. Um, it's, it's refreshing, as a matter of fact. But as I said, relative to most people out there, uh, you know, we, we have our ups and downs and our good and bad days as this, you know, what sandwich of a year that is 2020 continues to progress. But I'm glad. I'm glad that you, uh, you are in a good headspace and you are positive about what is going on at least in your life. It doesn't mean that everything's going on uh, perfectly outside, but at least in your life right now, that you can see the sunny side of things going on. It is. We are in the middle of summer. We are coming to you from Los Angeles, as we often are. And uh, it is uh, another glorious day here in, uh, in the city of uh, Angels. Mossy, what have, uh, what have you done over the past week uh, with regards to stuff that you are watching? I know our viewers and our listeners are always interested to get caught up. Have you gotten caught up, by the way? Because I know you had a backlog and a catalog of things that you had not watched. Well, um, last night I did watch the uh, season finale of Perry Mason, which I thought was terrific and really set things up nicely for the next season. So very happy with the way they ended that. Um, I also um, watched an absolutely chilling documentary on Amazon Prime called The Last Narc, mm. uh, which uh, examines the death of Kiki Camarena, a DEA agent who was uh, kidnapped and murdered by the uh, Guadalajara cartel uh, in 1985. It's a lot of the stuff that they hinted at on Narcos, but it's explained more fully. It, it delves into this long-held conspiracy theory that the CIA might have actually been involved in his abduction and murder. 
and it makes a very compelling case that, that that's true. Uh, so uh, I recommend it for anybody who's certainly a Narcos fan, but even if you're not, I mean, it's still a, a story that's uh, worth learning about. It's, it was very well done. And like I said, absolutely chilling. Speaking of docs, uh, now that uh, I'll be gone before dark, uh, the documentary on the Golden State Killer is uh, done and finished. I binged it. Uh, I have seen it all. What were your thoughts on that? For those that don't know, it's on HBO and it and it follows the uh, the tracking over multiple decades of what came to be known as the Golden State Killer, but it also follows it through um, uh, a woman who, along with other people, uh, kind of amateur sleuthed uh, and wrote books about it and contributed at least to the, the knowledge and uh, if, if not the actual capture ultimately, but at least contributed to uh, uh, people keeping it active and uh, digging up things that might not have been dug up in the past. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was incredible. Uh, it operates on parallel tracks because it examines the case itself, but also this woman, Michelle McNamara's obsession with the case and how it uh, consumed her life. And as horrific as it was to learn about all the crimes committed by the Golden State Killer, actually the most affecting part for me was Michelle McNamara's death. Mm -hmm. um, it was just so sad. I mean, you're, you're, they show texts from her from like the night before when she's talking about, you know, helping her daughter out with her homework and, and, and with her husband, Pat, talking to her husband, Pat Oswald, who's a famous comedian. And then she went to sleep and never woke up again. And, and it's, it's just, yeah, very powerful stuff. Uh, so yeah, I give it very high marks. It, look, I, I thought it was good. I give it high marks, except I did think that that, that was almost a separate story that deserved a story unto it, uh, itself. And since at the end, they made it very, very clear that nothing that the, the, the sleuths, including Michelle, actually did ultimately led to this capture. It was much more serendipity. Uh, it's almost like I would want to see the documentary from the, I guess, the the police side of it, ultimately. There's probably much more to this, the, to this story, but definitely worth your time. Five, about five episodes, five, six episodes, maybe? Six, I believe. Six, uh, six every, every single week. And uh, uh, some, some amazing stuff uh, and a peek behind this serial killer that lasted decades and decades and uh, unfortunately, ultimately, they think has been apprehended. I think the, the trial is still going on as we speak. All right, Mossy, enough of our watching habits. You ready to light this candle? I am. All right. As you know, uh, each, in regular times, we start off with my more formal State of the Union, but these are not regular times. And so we are going to jump right into the show. And we're going to start off with, with MLS. Mossy, because we are recording this on a Monday, tomorrow is the, the final of at the MLS's back tournament. So let's kind of put a bow on the MLS's back tournament. And then we're going to spin it forward to what is coming and coming really quick, just so people know. MLS is back tournament, which uh, even if you are the biggest hater and skeptic out there, I think you have to admit and give kudos and credit that it is an undeniable success on and off the field for Major League Soccer. Comes to a conclusion with the final, Orlando versus uh, Portland on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we're basically back to the MLS regular season in the form of Nashville and Miami, who, for those that may or may not remember, were jettisoned from the tournament because of uh, positive COVID tests and they weren't part of the MLS's back tournament. So they still had to make up three games and they, they will start making up those games here in the next week and then everybody else will come online. But first and foremost, uh, the MLS's back tournament. I was on uh, a call with the commissioner and a bunch of other media and it was 
it was amazing for me to hear the the questions as they went on and basically it was it was the same question over and over again to to the commissioner about about what they're going to do here that we're going to talk about in a little bit but at one point uh, the commissioner obviously was getting a little bit fed up and he he came out swinging in that you know he was patting himself and everyone on the back and look they should take a bow saying saying you talking about the media and a lot of other folks out there were very very skeptical and critical of how this was going to happen in these days that we live in and uh it obviously irked him and irked the league but i think it's also it's to be expected and while i do think that there are those out there that i don't think it's fair to say that they wanted the orlando bubble to fail i think that there were those that went above and beyond in terms of the the fear porn out there uh of of what this was of the, of what this was potentially uh going to be and look part of the media's job is to try to poke holes in things. And you have to be able to stand up. And MLS did uh, stand up. And a lot of the criticisms, especially at the beginning, were, were legitimate and completely un understandable. But you could see that the commissioner wanted to, at least at this moment, acknowledge that they did something unprecedented. They did something without a net and without a, a template and a history to follow. And it worked and it worked out. And so now it's the culmination on Tuesday. You can check it out. Uh, our colleagues at ESPN will be broadcasting the final of this of this tournament. Masi, I guess just in, in, in a general sense, how has this tournament happened for you over the uh, last month on and off the field? Well, how are you going to remember this tournament, I guess? Uh, I've greatly enjoyed it. I think it's been a major success. Now, I do have to keep reminding myself that it's not over because we signed off our coverage last Wednesday after Portland defeated Philadelphia in the first semifinal. And we went off the air that night with an essay uh, that you wrote that was incredible, reflecting on this whole thing. It was very end of tournament-ish. And so I've had to remind myself, wait, that, that wasn't <laughs> the end of the tournament. We still had a couple of games left. And now we have a final in which uh, there's a CCL berth at stake, a trophy, over a million dollars in prize money. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, 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 you know, there's been sort of an awkward gap here between the semifinals and the final, but the upshot of that is both teams are going to be rested in what should be a very compelling final. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Well, as far as I'm concerned, let's be honest. Uh, once we stop broadcasting from a Fox perspective, the tournament's pretty much over. Okay, so this is, you know, this is a little coda, a little <laughs> thing for, for the folks out there uh, to watch. With regards to that, thank you so much. It's very, very kind. It means a tremendous amount uh, that you would acknowledge that, especially because... You know, as a writer and a phenomenal writer uh, of of many of these uh, these things, you know that um, you know. And I've, I've done these over over the years, and you don't want to get too heady and you don't want to get too big and grandiose. But you know, I did want to to acknowledge that this was a whether you follow MLS or not, this was this was a piece of sporting history, and and from a soccer perspective, a piece of our soccer history that. While in the moment is 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 what it is, I think over time is going to be looked on, and that's why I use the the, the Brigadoon reference of this magical and mysterious type of month that provided us all of these uh, all of these memories, and some very very surreal and some very very raw and different uh, types of images on and off the field, and there was. I guess there was something for everybody if you did tune in. And a lot of people did. It was, as we said from the start, it was not perfect. It wasn't even fair. But that was not anything that 
unfortunately people were going to ever get or should expect in these in these strange time it was as we say time and time again making the best of a incredibly crap and difficult type of situation and that will only that will only continue uh, i think when i look at at teams and maybe individuals that are coming out of this tournament better because we talked about the bubble phenomenon and how much of this is going to play going forward and how much credit and credence should we put on these these uh, teams and players you know Oscar Pereja coach for Orlando I think is smelling like a rose as he should because in a very short time he has made us notice and made made us cautiously optimistic that this could continue outside the bubble with what Orlando is and that's no, no small feat given their history of few uh, futility so Oscar Correa continues to impress as, a, as, an, MLS, uh, as an MLS coach. Uh, Giovanni Savaresi on the other side also with, I think, a better collection of players, but still you got to get to a, a final. And this is a, everybody was adjusting in this. There was no precedent, like I said, so everybody had to adjust. I think, you know, he's going to come out of it. We talked about you know, teams like Minnesota. Uh, we talked about San Jose and whether that types of, type of thing uh, continues. You know, it's, 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 been, it's been fun to see. And now immediately we turn around and we start to judge these teams and players. Uh, and some of them will be in the context of what they did in the bubble. So if Orlando goes out and is a completely a, a, a shell of their former self in what they gave us in the bubble, you know, that's, that's a problem. If San Jose, who was great in the bubble, albeit in a very chaotic type of way, can't translate that, that, beautiful chaos on a continual weekly basis you know that's that's going to be that's going to be uh problematic all right mossy that's much more big picture on the outside but there is a game to be played there is a as you mentioned a trophy to be won that money shot the confetti uh, i hope they have a stage and confetti they they damn well better have that there as you said money to be won and look uh, you get to play in champions league a direct route and path to champions league and for someone like Orlando, which we know hasn't even come close to doing any of these things, let alone being in the playoffs, you know, this is, this is rarefied air for this team. Um, my money is still on Portland, which definitely means Orlando's winning like 4 nothing. but uh, I think that they are a better team. I think that from an attacking perspective with Blanco, even with Valeri starting, which I'm not sure that's, that's going to last, but at least at this point, I, I think that that makes them a better team. I think they have the, the, the skill and the tools to not tear Orlando apart, but to deal with what Orlando brings, uh, which, which is a lot of different things, including a revitalized, I guess, nanny who is, is just being really, really good for Orlando. But I think ultimately this is, uh, this is Portland's to lose, as they say. What about you, Mossy? What do you say? I would lean Portland, um, but I do want to say it's rare in a tournament like this that you end up with the two best teams in the final. And I, and I believe these have been the two best teams over the course of this tournament and the two best players going to head to head, because I would say Blanco and Nani have uh, clearly been uh, the two best players. And it, it's going to be fascinating. I, I suspect Orlando will have more of the ball. Oscar Pareja has turned them into a very good possession team. While Portland, we've seen them do it both ways throughout this tournament. Uh, They're happy sitting back. They've had games where they had 30-something percent possession and just hit teams on the counter. And then they've also had games where they were on the front foot, and they can do that with Blanco and Valeri and the emergence of Eric Williamson. Uh, But in this game, I think they'll probably sit back a little bit. And uh, the Valeri thing is absolutely fascinating to me because uh, him starting pushes Blanco out to the left wing where, uh, in my opinion, he's a little bit less effective 
so I'd actually like to see uh, Blanco start as at number 10 behind Abobasi and save Valeri as that super sub. You also have Nias Goda as, as a super sub as well. So I think that gives you two weapons to bring on in the second half to really change the game. So I would prefer if he did it that way. But but you, you from what you can gather, Valeri is probably going to start this game. I mean, I just, I mean, he started the last game. Uh, and I just think at this point, this is a this is a title game. This is, this is for everything. And I think you need all guns blazing. And I, and I don't think that Diego Valeri has yet wrapped his mind around being that, that substitute. And that's much more of maybe a, a long-term type of process. And so I don't think you keep powder dry here. And he was, he was very good. I was, I was worried that in the last game now starting, it would be, it would be problematic, but he ended, he didn't, he didn't miss a beat nor should he, because he's got plenty of, uh, uh, a talent. Now, are you of the opinion that someone like Diego Rossi from LAFC, who is at this point at the at the top of the goal scoring leaderboard, but his team obviously went out, he can't possibly win an MVP of a tournament because of when he went out? Yeah, I, I would say he gets my bronze ball if you're I would I would make <laughs> it, uh, you know, if if whoever wins this final and if one of Nani or Blanco has a great game, they get the player of the tournament. The other one gets the silver ball, if you will. And then Diego Rossi would be my, my bronze ball. That's how I would play it. Yeah. I think you get knocked out in the quarterfinals. Well, two other guys that have also had great tournaments, they get all the way to the final. I think you have to give it to one of them. Yeah. I mean the, the worst thing, uh, well, it depends on which side you are, but the worst thing for everybody, but LAFC people is that uh, LAFC went out and the way that they went out and, the fire that that will have ignited in Bob Bradley and company to do things in whatever this regular season ends up looking at and to be there at the real end of this season and to say, and then they'll poo-poo the bubble and they'll say it doesn't really count and nobody really cares. <laughs> in the same way that sometimes uh, they like to stand on the, uh, the, the supporter shield and then, <laughs> uh, and then when somebody wins MLS Cup, you poo-poo the uh, supporter shield and the, uh, and the regular season. But the, they will have something to say when this is all said and done. And by the way, Carlos Vela will be back, uh, back in the fold. Uh, Masi, anything else on this game or on this tournament? I uh, know, that's it. All right, so let's put a bow, uh, a bow on that. Uh, we will reference it back. Like I said, it'll become part of the, you know, the history uh, and part of the, the folklore, and we will, we will reference things uh, for years to come right now. And people will, will say, hey, remember in the bubble when this happened? Or remember in the bubble on or off the field when these uh, things happened? And now, by the way, it should be said that we do have a template and we do have, let's, let's be honest, a case study as to what can work because you know after the initial problems and everything got sorted out and the protocols were in place the reality is that the, the players and the teams and the staff were in a much safer environment than probably what they are all going back to right now because of that bubble type of mentality so um Congratulations to everybody. I've, I've mentioned many times all the men and women from a league perspective that worked so hard to put that together. Uh, and also, uh, and I know they don't get a lot of uh, credit or kudos, but to the referees, uh, the men and women in that crew that went down, left their families, took whatever risks uh, and sacrifices uh, that anybody else was taking going down into that, uh, that bubble, uh, left their jobs, um, certainly aren't getting the attention or the money that... Uh, that the players get uh, and did their jobs and, and did it very, very well on a consistent basis. So 
well done. Um, however, saying all of that, uh, MLS and certainly American soccer, we don't rest on our laurels. We give ourselves a little pat on the back and then we move on because there's plenty of other challenges to come. Uh, and that challenge, as we said, is right around the corner. So MLS's back is done. And now we're not calling it anything other than the return of the MLS regular season. But what it amounts to is the return of play in home markets. And it starts, as I said, uh, on Wednesday with Nashville and Dallas. Okay, the two teams that were, as we said, jettisoned from the MLS's back tournament trying to make up these, uh, these games. And there are games in home markets. Uh, again, I was on this call with, uh, with Don Garber where question after question after question was being asked and people would just change words or phrasing here, but it came down to this. Why? Why are you doing this in uh, home markets? And we come to find out that there is the potential for these home markets if it is allowed by the local or state authorities uh, from a law or restriction perspective to have crowds and to have fans in the stands, which we know has not been anything that we have seen yet, uh, MLS is allowing that to happen. Now, we, we come to find out there's only two or three teams right now that are even considering this. And uh, you talk about Dallas, you talk about Real Salt Lake, and you talk about Sporting KC. And it's a very small number. We're talking 2,500 to 5,000. Uh, obviously the protocols are where, and, and the devil is in the details. The league has to approve all of these things, but we not only are going to see the return to home markets of, of major league soccer and have a, a major league soccer games, but in some of those markets, uh, and a few of them, we are actually going to see crowds in the stands. And that was, you know, a real bone of contention um, when the uh, commissioner Garber was talking about this. And, you know, he time and time again referenced the bubble and all that they had learned about the protocols and what is necessary, the individual and collective responsibility that is necessary. But he also acknowledged that just like the bubble, there are going to be problems and there are going to be challenges and ones that they can anticipate and ones that they can't. And that this is a fluid type of, uh, type of situation. Uh, we all know the business realities behind getting back to play, especially when it comes to professional sports uh, and the necessity, I guess it's not even to make money now, it's to limit the loss of uh, that they are going to incur this year. But look, uh, we've announced our Fox broadcast slate for the next couple of months. And it should be noted that they only gave teams their next six or so games and could because this is fluid and this this can change as we uh we go on um you know we're starting out with a a classico so lafc and uh the los angeles galaxy on big fox right mossy is that uh, is that what we have you said classico are you off the trafico thing or are you, are you did i say did i say oh really <laughs> bob bradley is just he's he's infiltrated my mind uh no it is El Trafico, okay, and it is on Big Fox, and it is LAFC versus the uh, the Galaxy. That's how we will be kicking off our. We need to call this something. I know it's it's kind of boring, just the return to regular season. We need we need some sort of name. So come up with a name uh, out there. All right. Anyway, Mossy, what were your uh, initial impressions when this was announced? Yeah. So just to go over some of the details, as you mentioned, um, all the teams besides Dallas and Nashville 
uh, will play 18 regular season games uh, divided into different phases. And they've announced the first phase, which is six games, three home, three away, mostly regional matchups uh, to cut down on the travel. A lot of rivalry games, as you mentioned. Um, our first two, August 22nd, is the El Trafico LAFC LA Galaxy. And then the next day we have Portland, Seattle. So not too shabby there either. Um, uh, Dallas and Nashville do have uh, these uh, three games to make up because they didn't play in the MLS's back uh, group stage. And so they're going to play, uh, as you mentioned, the first of those uh, right off the bat here, uh, Wednesday, uh, August 12th. I believe the other one will be August 16th and then one announced at a later date. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still trying to figure out what to do with the Canadian teams because of the travel restrictions between um, Canada and the United States right now. So uh, they're not involved in this first phase of games. Uh, they're going to be announcing the next phase of the schedule sometime in September and presumably the Canadian teams will enter the mix then. I even saw a report in the last couple of days that Toronto might play their matches at uh, Red Bull Arena. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I mean, listen, uh, you mentioned this before and, and I'm going to echo it here. Uh, I know you're, you're walking a political minefield when you talk about these things, but there has been an overly fatalistic tone to some of the coverage about all these different sports looking to get back into play. And now people are saying, well, a bubble is one thing, but home markets are completely different. Yeah, well, I heard a lot of doom and gloom about the bubble too, uh, especially after those first couple of days when Dallas and Nashville dropped out. I heard a lot of, yeah, this isn't going to last and this is going to be canceled any day now. And they worked through the problems and they got the tournament completed uh, and or there was one game left and, and it's been overall success. Um, so, you know, listen, uh, Don Garber, as you mentioned, he's, he's come out and said, it's not going to be perfect. Players probably are going to test positive. We probably are going to have to postpone games. We have contingency plans in place for all that. And ultimately if it doesn't work, we'll cancel the season, but we, but we at least want to try and I'm okay with that. So I don't know why there's, such negativity surrounding this. Uh, I think it's at least worth seeing how it goes. Well, you know uh, why, Mossy. You're a, you're a big boy. You've been around long enough. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, that, that's <laughs> no. I mean, it, it is. It, it it's human nature. It's it's much more attractive of a story to criticize. It's much more attractive of a story to, uh, like you said, be be fatalistic or to be um, to be talking about worst case scenarios. Uh, and uh, and and disasters or problems and and as I said, look, I don't think that anybody wants that to happen. But there isn't a human element when you write something like that, or when you report something like that, or even when you think something like that and and express it. You you say I don't want you know believe me I don't I'm I'm happy to be proven wrong. But there's an element, a human element, that you want to be acknowledged and proven right in what you're in what you're talking about. And like I said, it doesn't mean that anybody wants anybody to get hurt or anything to go uh, to go south or poorly. But you know, when when you write when you write these types of things, and I'm not once again, write whatever you want. I don't, I don't care. Write uh, write whatever you want. But uh, but when it comes to this, like 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 you said. Uh, there is now a precedent and there is now a, and I know it's different. I know the, the Orlando bubble is different, but these people are working day and night to make sure that it is as safe as possible. Is it a hundred percent foolproof? No, it's not. And guess what? Nothing, nothing, uh, nothing is in life. Now you mentioned uh, the Canadian teams, which, you know, being a, being a, uh, a league that operates in two countries, especially uh, in this moment in time, makes it difficult. It, it, 
you, you mentioned also the potential for Toronto to play their home games in the U.S. And, and there's even reports out that they would be playing at the Red Bull Arena, which is also where NYCFC is playing. So you'd have a triple type of, I don't know if it would be a bubble, but at least three teams playing in, uh, in one place. And once again, just making the best because Yankee Stadium isn't going to be available. And so NYCFC has to adjust. Toronto, uh, because of the fact that they're in, in Canada, may have to adjust and may have to you know, make, make their home, at least on game days in, uh, in another place. They should play as the Metro Stars, come back as the Metro Stars or, or something like that. The Toronto Metro Stars. That would be, <laughs> that would be an, an, homage, uh, an homage back to this. You know, the other part of this is that, you know, from a broadcasting standpoint, you know, some of these, uh, like you said, are going to be nationally broadcast. Some of them are going to involve regional broadcasts. You know, everybody's going to now get involved. And I think it'll be really interesting to juxtapose how, how, because how, now we have a, a, you know, idea of what an MLS game looks like, but it's all relative to what's happened over the last month in Orlando. And how much of that translates uh, when we talk about the you know the virtual offerings that we have and the the signage that we have and the LEDs and and uh, and the enhanced audio and all of that and how much of that now uh, continues continues on from a Fox perspective look we're we're going to continue to to pump in the uh, the noise or at least uh, have people given the option of pumping uh, pumping in the noise but now you're in multiple different venues and all of the different challenges that come with broadcasting games in uh, in other places now we've done them at, at all these different places but once again this will be the first time that we are seeing these environments now um playing a game uh after we you know we started lockdown and the pandemic started and those games uh those games before do you think mossy when, when it comes to mls teams right now who do you think is best positioned right now to translate their success in the bubble to the regular season I don't know if they're best position, but uh, I absolutely think Orlando are for real. This is not like a Greece 2004 where they're just getting all these lucky breaks and smash and grab victories. Uh, they're playing like genuinely good soccer. They have a plan. As I said, Oscar Pereira has turned this into a very good possession team. So I see no reason why what they're doing in this bubble wouldn't translate. Uh, so for sure, they're a team I have my eye on. Uh, and then, you know, Although they got knocked out by Orlando, I mean, LAFC, I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to watch them play again because they, they're just so entertaining. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, and, you know, just to add a few things. So, so players are going to be tested regularly and they're going to be mostly flying charter flights. Mm -hmm. And the idea is for away games is to arrive and leave on the same day uh, as the game. So, and, and if all goes well, the regular season would end November 8th. Playoffs would start November 20th and MLS Cup would be December 12th. Uh, and it is an expanded playoff field with 18 teams. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how this goes. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very curious to see how everything. All right. Well, let's, let's finish up, uh, you know, this MLS uh, segment here. Uh, there is news. Uh, the, the, the business of soccer continues to go on. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, Inter-Miami inter and what that is or, or isn't at this point. Uh, now we come to find out that uh, Matuidi is possibly going from Inter uh, or to Inter Miami. Is this is this a good move? Keep in mind, this is Inter Miami. This is let's be honest. This is David Beckham's Inter Miami, on course for a legendary and historically poor 
start when it comes to MLS teams and certainly expansion teams in that they haven't gotten a, uh, a win yet. But the expectations when it comes to the team in Miami, and when I say Miami, I mean the team that's playing in Fort Lauderdale um, and hopefully in the future in Miami. Is this the type of signing that should be celebrated uh, and expected when it comes to what David Beckham's Inter-Miami is in your mind? It's an interesting one because the, the plan with Inter-Miami seems to be uh, to mostly sign younger Latin American players while keeping the powder dry for those one or two big, sexy international signings. And this sort of doesn't fit into either. You know, it's sort of right. in between. It's, it's, a, it's a veteran European player, but who's not a move-the-needle guy Blaise Matuidi, but he's certainly a good player. He's had a very good career at PSG, Juventus now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if he's, uh, if he's in, in, in good shape fitness-wise, I mean, he'll help for sure. He makes them a better team. Uh, but, yeah, as you've mentioned, it's, it's not a move-the-needle guy, and, yeah. and he's going to be taking up one of their DP spots, it sounds like. So it's an interesting he, route that they went here. He, yeah, he's not selling any tickets, but it, it could be a good soccer move. And it might only be the start of some other moves as, uh, as, they, go, uh, as they go forward. You know, we talk so much about the – you know, the soft launch approach of teams that come into the league. And I, I think I've talked about this before that I don't think that inter Miami can afford to soft launch this, even though they're not yet in their full stadium. I mean, this is, this is Miami. And with all due respect, it's, it's not Minnesota. Uh, you know, this is a, a big market and a market with a lot of attention. And, you know, once again, with an ownership, in the likes of uh, David Beckham that begs for big things to be done. And the expectation all along was that big things were going to be done. And, you know, the pandemic came and kind of threw everything out of whack and, and shut things down. But now that and look, the pandemic's not done, but at least we're, we are moving forward. Now that expectation is going to continue to ramp up. And I know there's no, not necessarily, uh, crowds that are going to be buying tickets to see that, but there are going to be people that are going to be tuning in, are going to expect David Beckham's Inter Miami to give them something to scream and yell about. There will be others that will be uh, <coughs> tuning in, uh, including us. We will be following it closely as MLS uh, comes back online in all of these home markets. We are keeping our fingers crossed. We are knocking on wood. We are praying to the soccer gods that everybody continues to be safe and healthy. Uh, when it comes to uh, not just Major League Soccer coming back online, because there's other leagues and there's other sports that are contemplating uh, coming back online in home markets and in, in, and in different ways and with the inherent risk uh, that, uh, that exists for these, uh, these types of things. Mossy, anything else on this, uh, this MLS topic before we move on? That's it. Okay. When we come back, UEFA Champions League. All right, yeah, we have our, our world wrap coming up next. So all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, uh, when it comes to moves on the field and moves off the field when it comes to Champions League and some very big names uh, and some big teams. When we come back uh, in a little bit here. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi Lawless here with a quick word from Keeps. As guys, so much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair. Oh, don't I know it. From how it feels after getting a fresh cut to the way it's perfectly styled before going out. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time. Because let's face it, no guy is ever ready to go bald. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. 
Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. Keeps treatments typically take between four and six months to see results. So it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. And more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 per month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash lawless to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash lawless. Okay, welcome back. We're going to uh, do our little world wrap up here and we're going to focus in on the uh, Champions League, which has returned in the form of these Second legs that had yet to be played when uh, the pandemic hit. And so uh, a couple of them had to be played in order to get down to the final group of eight that then will go in this next week uh, to the, once again, we need a a good name for the the Portugal bubble, but the Portugal bubble is what we're going to call it. um, That is going to house the, you know, what's left of this uh, this Champions League? All right, Mossy, so much to talk about, and 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 so much happened. What do you want to What do you want to start with first? Should we talk Should we talk Juventus? Sure. All right. I guess my first question to you is: Was this surprising that Juventus went out? Uh, mildly, but if you had watched them play the last few weeks, it wasn't a shocker. And I will say, I do think they got burned. Uh, in terms of the officiating. And I heard a lot of people say, well, the, the two penalties cancel out. They do not cancel out. An away goal and a home goal do not cancel out. If you had wiped those two plays away, it would have been one nil after 90 minutes and would have gone to extra time. Instead, a 2-1 Juventus win, they get knocked out. So uh, they do have a right to gripe. Uh, that was just in- almost surreal that after reviewing that on VAR, they would still uphold that penalty on the Bentoncourt foul on Awar. I mean, that's one of the worst refereeing decisions I've seen in a long time. The other one, the Depay one, I wouldn't have given it either. But as we've talked about at nauseum on this podcast, nobody understands the handball rule. And <laughs> it, you're sort of entering this gray right. area interpretation where you could you see those called sometimes I don't like it but I you know I can live with that uh, the other one was way more egregious to me and the more costly one because it wasn't a way goal oh Mossy you are such a Juventus apologist and <laughs> it's just it's disgusting the way that you shift blame and you won't just look at well not yourself because I don't think that, that you played but look at Juventus and what they did even put themselves in that position and against man liquor isn't going to be happy uh our, our Lyon fan who yeah I know right come on I mean against inferior opposition you are Juventus um look the <laughs> the the narrative going in and ultimately going out was Juventus is expected to win Syria A each and every year, regardless uh, if sorry or you or Alex Dowd is at the helm. Okay. (laughs) So uh, that's not anything at this point anymore to be excited about or to be celebrated. All right. Because it is such an expectation in that the only thing that really matters either from a player, uh, an introduction of a player or an introduction of a coach to Juventus is getting them to Champions League and ultimately 
finding a way to win Champions League. Have I framed that correctly in terms of what the general view is right now in 2020 of Juventus? Absolutely. And, and okay. they now have a manager who has the same coaching experience as myself or Alex Depp. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, they, you know, they bomb out of this, uh, of this tournament. Uh, and, you know, the fact that they won, you know, Serie A and the Scudetto again means, means nothing. And so they recognize that somebody has to go and you can't fire the whole team. And so they fire the coach. And, you know, they fire a, a coach with, you know, incredible history and impeccable credentials and, and plenty of experience, shall we say. And, <laughs> and then they hire Andrea Pirlo, a legendary player. Ten days ago, if, I'm, if my math is correct, he was installed as the Juventus under-23 youth coach, uh, has yet to coach an actual game for that team, and now finds himself uh, picking up the phone and saying, hey, listen, about that uh, under-23 job, that's all fine and well, but we need you to kind of step into the breach here and take over the full team. Uh, how do you think that this, this ultimately played out behind the scenes, Masi. I'm asking you to put yourself back there and see how this happened. First on Sadi, um, Juventus have two uh, overriding concerns right now. One is to win the Champions League. And the other is uh, they very much want to sexy up their brand. Mm -hmm. And in bringing in a coach like Sadi, he doesn't have any Champions League winning pedigree, but he did have this reputation from his work at Napoli as a guy that you bring in and you're going to play expansive, attractive football. And so he needed to achieve one of two things this season, obviously win the Champions League. But short of that, at least if he had gotten Juventus playing really exciting football, they, they perhaps could have excused it. Uh, and he didn't. They actually were a pretty dour team to watch this season and they crash out in the round of 16. So, um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he's gone. Uh, some people were surprised by how quickly this all unfolded. Um, I think this speaks to this nutty calendar we're operating in in 2020 where there's much less time between this season and next and so if you're going to make a coaching change you can't dither around too long you kind of have to make it right at right at the end of one season to give the next guy a chance to step in and have a proper preseason yeah, i don't think anybody's honestly i don't think anybody is is miffed at the coaching change like that that that's normal that that could happen and and maybe it should happen given what we talked about earlier Nobody's, I don't think anybody is, is crying over the fact that Sarri is no longer there, uh, except for my friend Roberto Martinez on, uh, uh, you know, gave a, uh, a, well, a loving tribute him in a second. And, and said he needed uh, more time. I think it's much more about Pirlo coming in and replacing him. That's yeah. where the angst is. Which, listen, we've talked about this many times on the podcast. There is very much an ex-player fetish now. Mm -hmm. And when I say ex-player fetish, I mean, it's this notion that if you were a cerebral player and a charismatic leader and you understand the culture of a club from having played in it, that that's all going to translate to coaching. And, and th those things give you the credentials to step in and be the coach, even without the greatest coaching resume. Uh, and, you know, there've been two mammoth success stories in the last decade of Pep Guardiola and Zinedine Zidane. And so Juventus have come out and said, we hope that Pirlo is the next Pep or Zidane. They're pretty upfront about the fact that that's what they're envisioning. Three of the top six in three of the big six in England right now have kind of gone that route with Lampard, Arteta, and Solskjaer. But the interesting thing is if you go through all of these examples 
uh, Pep coached Barcelona B for one season. Zidane was an assistant to Ancelotti at Real Madrid and then coached the Castilla team briefly. Um, Arteta was an assistant under Pep. Uh, Sochar coached smaller clubs in Norway. Uh, Frank Lampard coached Derby Counting and on and on you go. And so it might not seem like much, but there was at least some bleeding in there and something to kind of, you know, prepare them. And, 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 and Juventus clearly had that in mind too, because as you mentioned, they initially appointed Pirlo as the under 23 coach. So they felt like he needed a bit of an intermediary step first. And it's, it's just amazing that in the span of a few days, as you mentioned, they thought about it and said, ah, the heck with that. Let's just go straight to giving him. So, you know, it's, I guess it's sort of the natural conclusion to this direction we've sort of been drifting in any way with these with this, these ex-players and up to now there's was a thought that okay they even though the main reason you're giving him the job is because who they were as players they still need a little something coaching wise on the resume to justify it and Juventus have now taken it that extra step of no they don't uh we were convinced by what he was as a player that that it's all going to translate and he's going to make for a good coach uh, you know, another example is Xavi is clearly ticketed for the Barcelona job, but he felt like he had to go to Qatar and coach there for a little bit. And he's talked about how he only wants to get to Barcelona when he's quote unquote ready. So up to now, there had been this notion that to go from nothing to one of these big clubs is a little too much of a, of a step. And you do need an intermediary step first. And with Pirlo and Juventus, they're skipping that and, 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 and just giving him the job. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it goes. All right. So Andrea Pirlo gets named as the new head coach of Juventus and everyone's head explodes. The angst levels are at historic proportions. Here's the way I see this, okay? And I've said this before, life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair, okay? Now, sports and soccer are oftentimes fairer than life, but they're still not fair. Uh, sports oftentimes are not a meritocracy. It's not what you have done. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the CV that you have, okay? As you mentioned, you know, Landon Donovan is more qualified to coach Juventus than Andrea Pirlo in terms of experience. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Pirlo can't come in and be the best thing since sliced bread, and be the perfect fit for, uh, for Juventus. Don't think for a second that knives are not going to be out, either very overtly uh, or behind the scenes. And don't think for a second that there aren't coaches that would have killed or died for the opportunity to coach Juventus, even with the pressure of, of basically win or get to a, uh, a Champions League final. There are plenty of people out there that would have had the appropriate experience and incredible resume that nobody would have batted an eyelid if they had been, uh, been named. And ultimately, this is about them relying and having faith that somebody who has been around and understands how Juventus functions as a club, that that type of inherent... Uh, understanding uh, has seeped into what they are. Now, you know, you mentioned some of the, the likes of Zidane and Pep, who, you know, while they had more, a little bit more experience, for the most part, they were given the keys to a Ferrari and they didn't miss a beat and were able to not just drive it, but even drive it better than others in the past. But they are the aberration, okay? They, they are the absolute anomaly when you look at the amount of quote-unquote big-time players 
that have then had to actually get into a position where they are explaining it. And it doesn't matter how much inherent knowledge um, and understanding that Pirlo has about Juventus. If he can't go into that locker room and explain what he wants done, and yes, he was a, a quote-unquote cerebral player, whatever the hell that means, okay? <laughs> he was a good player, okay? Uh, and it doesn't – if somebody was a really physical player, and therefore I guess you, you imply that he wasn't cerebral and that he didn't use his or her head, that doesn't preclude them from being uh, good coaches. Regardless, Pirlo has to come into the locker room and be able to explain to these players what he wants to do, all right? And not just say, well, I did it this way. And just like any player, being able to explain it is very different than being able to actually, actually do it. And that he's coming in without that bag of tricks and those tools that you acquire over time puts him at a disadvantage. Doesn't mean that it can't work. And all of these players, by the way, that are now, that are now coaches, you know, they were given not just the benefit of the doubt, but they were given, as I said, the keys to Ferraris. I mean, look, this is Juventus still, okay? <laughs> okay? And if this is your first gig, you know, try your first gig being a mid-level team that's trying to stave off relegation or something like that, where you don't have the players to even come close to doing what you necessarily want and you have to coach them up, and you don't have that coaching experience. That, for me, that's where real coaches and real managers show, them, show themselves. And I'm not discounting the importance of being able to manage and coach the elites. And those, those guys that we've talked about have found a way in very rarefied air to be able to have success. But I think this is going to be fascinating to see. I think it's a crash and burn type of thing on one sense or incredibly successful. I think it's hard for anything to, to be in between and he will have to, he will have to learn on the job. And, you know, this isn't just <laughs> giving the keys to the Ferrari uh, to, uh, to someone It's giving it to a teenager basically. And we know that teenagers are morons. And well, can last thing for me on this and then we can move okay. on. Uh, he's taking over Juventus at an interesting time. Juventus have won nine Serie A titles in a row, but this past season, they finished one point above Inter. Now, to be fair, this was almost like, you know, a basketball team that's down 10 with a minute left and then hits a couple three-pointers to dress up the, the final score. It wasn't as close as it looked. I mean, people are going to look at that years from now and think that this was some epic title race between Juventus and Inter. Inter weren't really a factor in the title race the last few weeks, but Juventus, once they saw they were going to win it, they kind of switched off. They lost some games. Inter finished strong, and so it ends up being a one-point gap. But I do think Inter are coming with Antonio Conte. He's got this, like, self-destructive thing, Antonio Conte. You know, he's in a great situation now, and instead of being happy about it, he keeps picking fights with Inter's management. So maybe the whole thing will self-combust there. But if uh, Antonio Conte can sort of, you know, <laughs> resist blowing this thing up on his own, I think Inter are headed in the right direction with the right moves. Uh, this, this offseason could, could potentially challenge Juventus uh, next season. So uh, Pirlo's entering a situation where not only is there's pressure to, like I said, sexy up the brand and get Juventus to play uh, attractive football and obviously to win the Champions League, but I'm not sure Serie A is such a foregone conclusion either. He might be going into a season here where he's going to be in a dogfight with Inter for the domestic title. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he does. What do you think of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's reaction? Uh, you know, the, the tantrum and the crying... Uh, post game. Uh, there, 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 are, there are a lot of different 
takes on that. You know, one side is, you know, that shows the true competitor and the fire that burns with him, even at this age and after all the success and all the money and all the fame, he's still ultimately at his core is somebody that wants to win. And then there's others that say, what a baby. I, I, I want to get your, uh, your thoughts first and then I'll give you mine. Uh, I, I don't have an issue with it. Uh, I, I, I guess I go more with the first thing you said. Uh, it shows his passion. Uh, I will say it's an amazing stat. In his two seasons with Juventus, uh, he's played, they've played six Champions League knockout games and scored seven goals, and he scored all seven of them. Uh, nobody has scored a Champions League knockout goal in those two seasons besides him. So, you know, he's done his part. And even in this game, he scored both their goals, and, and you know, it, it's been, it just hasn't gotten the help around him. Um, and which, you know, and, and, and this could segue nicely to the next game we want to talk about, but, you know, it's been two years since that Ronaldo Real Madrid, uh, divorce and both Juventus and both Ronaldo and Real Madrid getting knocked out on the same day made people sort of take a step back and, and reflect on that again and say, boy, this hasn't really played out great for either side because they, they used to be, you know, winning Champions League titles, no problem, uh, when they were together. And now since they've split apart, uh, neither one has been able to, to win it. All right. Well, let me just finish it up with this then when it comes to the the tantrum uh, and the crying and the whining uh, of losing uh, for Ronaldo. It did not endear me to him. I love Cristiano Ronaldo, but I cringed at that. And part of it is, I will freely admit that I, I can't relate to that. It, it, you know, maybe, I mean, it's because of where I come from and where I grew up. While, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't that I wasn't competitive or I didn't want to win, but maybe I just... I, I brought much more perspective on what the game was and what the game wasn't, even, even in that moment. And what it does tell me is that I think that, I think, look, he's not going to have a problem from a lifestyle standpoint because he's never going you know, to want for anything because of the amount of money that he's made. But I think once the game is gone for Cristiano Ronaldo, I think it's going to be hard for him, very, very hard for him. Um, and I think he will be left trying to chase that feeling that obviously burns within him as a, uh, as a player. And maybe I'm reading too much into it and, and psychoanalyzing him uh, for that moment. But it, like I said, if, if I'm a teammate, that doesn't instill me with, with confidence. And like I said, it doesn't endear me to him. I don't look at it as that's the, the, the fire in the core that, that makes him – you know, arguably one of the great, uh, the greatest players ever to, not arguably, arguably the greatest player ever to, uh, ever to play the game. All right, but who knows? Uh, could have been just, just been having a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's next, Masi? Well, so that same day, uh, Manchester City beat uh, Real Madrid 2-1 to complete a 4-2 aggregate triumph. Uh, Rafael Varane had, you know, <laughs> the worst <laughs> had a day. Speaking of a bad day, yeah. <laughs> he was a center back, must have cringed when you, we watched that. Um, a couple of big picture things here. Um, I think this had to feel good for Pep um, because uh, Zidane, there's been a lot of buzz the last couple of weeks after winning La Liga with Real Madrid that, you know, we talk so much about Klopp and Pep and, and why isn't Zidane considered the best manager in the world? And, and Zidane has sort of been pushed up alongside those two. And, and for Pep to kind of knock him out here and outfox him in both games, I think, you know, it was a nice little sort of flex the muscles moment for Pep to kind of remind everybody of what a great manager he is. Um, so, uh, the other thing, are, are you ready for a little bit of a mossy rant here? Yes. I, oh, I love it. And I love that you are prefacing it and, and, and everything. All right. So let me, let me get comfortable here. All right. Lay it on me. 
I consider myself an Eden Hazard fan. Uh, he's been one of the great players in world football for the last decade. But I don't know if it's because he's accrued so much goodwill or people haven't played, paid close, close enough attention to it, but he has not gotten as much grief as you would expect for a debut season with Real Madrid that was an abject catastrophe. He showed up overweight. He missed loads of time with injuries. And when he played, he looked slow and lethargic. Eden Hazard, who cost 100 million euros, uh, finishes this season with uh, one goal in 22 games in all competitions. He did finish with seven assists, which I know looks respectable, but I got to say that is a quiet seven assists from somebody who watched Real Madrid play all season. I did a double take when I saw that number because that does not jive with the eye test. He was never like a creative force this season at all. Uh, and he saved the worst for last. He was absolutely dreadful in this game. It was like they were playing with 10 players. I can't believe Zidane left him on the field for 80 minutes. And uh, I didn't see this, but uh, my dad told me that Roberto Martinez said on the CBS pregame that the reason Real Madrid won La Liga was because of how well Eden Hazard played after the restart. That is preposterous. Uh, that is up there with Thomas Wrong and saying Atalanta struggled after the restart. Eden Hazard started uh, Real Madrid's first couple of games after the restart, played pretty well, had assists in each game. I even came on this pod and said, hey, it's a new lease on life for him. And if he finishes the season strong and propels him to the La Liga title, he could change the narrative about the season. So the stage was set for the thing that Roberto Martinez said happened to have happened, but it didn't. He then got injured shortly thereafter, missed a bunch of games, and was a non-factor down the stretch. So that was – that was. Uh, and listen, uh, if Roberto Martinez did say that, that is the one dark cloud in a clear sky for CBS because it was an incredible start for them. Uh, all credit. It was top-notch. Uh, they did a phenomenal job covering these games. Uh, but that one bothered me a little bit because, you know, you're, you either got to be the Belgium coach or an analyst. And when you're an analyst, you got to take the Belgium hat off and not use that platform to blow smoke up the ass of a guy who, let's be honest, had a disastrous season uh, and isn't deserving of any praise right now. So uh, that's that's my. Uh, All that's right. So so what that. I hear is that you're <laughs> you're angry that the mob has not come for uh, in Hazard in the way that they let's say they came for hmm, James. Uh, you know, so, I mean, is he, is he, is he bordering on Hamas territory? Well, what's interesting to me is we've, we've focused so much on the Barcelona flops the last couple of years, Coutinho, Dembele, Griezmann, and uh, to me, Hazard is, is been even worse than any of those guys were. And yet he hasn't, it, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe people are aware of how bad he's been and they're talking about it, but it's, I just haven't heard it so I don't know to me it feels like it's something that sort of has gotten lost in the ether of just how bad a season Eden Hazard had are you are you buying because I know over the years we've talked about Zinedine Zidane and how even though he might not get the attention and he's certainly not as big and bold as others you know he certainly backed it up with with results but are you on this this new trend or train right now to say that he is starting to show cracks and you know, maybe uh, maybe starting to show his true colors as to what he is, or maybe more importantly, what he isn't? No, uh, this was his first time getting eliminated from the Champions League. And to be fair, Manchester City are the better team. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Zidane did well to win La Liga this season. So uh, no, I don't think anything like that. I do think he, he coached the poor game here. It was a questionable decision to start Hazard because he wasn't completely fit. He was coming back from an injury. Uh, and then look, I know I'm going to come off as biased here as a Brazilian, but 
he, he wasn't giving you anything. And when he brings Asensio on in the 60-minute mark, the move was to take out Hazard there. Instead, he took out Rodrigo. And one of the things I admire about Zidane is he has that strong personality to take out the star. And that was a rare instance of him maybe, you know, taking the easy way route. It's, all, it's easier to take the Brazilian teenager out than the 100 million euro signing. And so I, I get, you know, he trusted pedigree there. And then, you know, he leaves uh, Vinicius on the bench the entire game, which nobody's been able to figure that out. Uh, the, the Madrid media was stunned by that. And the loads of articles written the last few days of people trying to make sense out of that. That was bizarre. I mean, that was, they looked flat in the second half. That was a game that was screaming out for a guy to bring some energy and to try to make something happen. And, um, and so, and, and you mean like, Vinicius, you mean like a, a bail? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's a whole other conversation, but well, I mean, but uh, it's part of the assessment, isn't it? I mean, if 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 he like, I, I I appreciate that you appreciate when they can stand up and they're not they're they're willing to make difficult choices, but you know, at, at the expense of of the team doing well. I mean, yes, it's Real Madrid, but you still have to have all guns blazing, and you want all guns blazing, especially like you said against a very good team like Manchester uh, City. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Bale asked out of this game um okay, okay but, but isn't it part that, isn't it part that there's been, in his defense there's been an environment created there where he he knew he wasn't going to play and 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 but, didn't want to be a distraction and, but isn't it part of leadership and part of managing to be able to you know to to calm somebody or to ingratiate them in or understanding how and when to put your arm around them or to kick them and you know i don't i don't know uh, well, i don't know i'm I'll, not I'll, look I'll, I'm, I'm not i'm not saying that, uh, that he's not a good this. coach I'll end on this. Uh, uh, for all the issues I have with Gareth Bale, he couldn't have been any worse than Hazard in that game. So. <laughs> Leave it at that. Um, That's true. All right. So, uh, so we're, we, we have our matchups now. And it should be said, I mean, it wasn't even a, a question. Uh, Bayern Munich came and rolled against Chelsea. It wasn't even a question. No Christian Pulisic. Uh, he has been injured. He's, right now they're saying three to six weeks he's out, um, which, which means he could be out at the beginning of the season. Uh, and the return of the season, we talked about this last week. It's just, unfortunately, another in a long line of, of injuries, uh, some more serious uh, than others. But, you know, the quicker he gets back, the better it is for him and, and for Chelsea. And he will be coming into a Chelsea that's having, that will have more competition uh, for, uh, for places. And I'm actually looking forward to what Chelsea looks like, uh, looks like uh, going forward. But we do have our final, uh, our final matchups here. Mossy, what, uh, what is appetizing to you other than, Barcelona Bayern Munich. Well, yeah, that that is the the glamour matchup of the quarterfinals. Uh, this uh, PSG Atalanta game is is interesting. Uh, although I'm wondering what kind of team PSG is going to be able to put out for this game because uh, Di Maria is suspended, and now you're hearing Mbappe and Verratti both probably out. So uh, that is, I mean, this was already going to be a tall order given the fact that they've only played two competitive matches since March, while Atalanta have been playing in Serie A and are, are, are such a good team. Uh, and now you add in the fact that PSG likely going to be out without three of their five best players. Um, so, you know, I hope, <laughs> I hope people take all this into account when they analyze this match and, and analyze it with some nuance rather than just if PSG get knocked out, it's because Neymar bottled it and he's a choker and, and PSG are a bunch of chokers because uh, the circumstances have really uh, conspired against him here. Although to be fair, Atalanta also have a big miss in Ilicic who's dealing with uh, some personal problems, which I won't get into. You can Google it and see, you know, it's a marital uh, situation. Um, but it looks like he's going he's gonna to miss this game too. So that's a big miss for Atalanta. But still, I, I favor Atalanta in this one, I think. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, tell me who goes through. Atalanta, PSG. 
You still favor Atalanta? I favor Atalanta, yeah. Okay. I'm going to take PSG. Okay. Uh, and that's the first game, August 12th. Then we can, we can take them in order. The next day is Atletico Madrid against Leipzig, which I said when the draw occurred that Atletico Madrid were the single biggest winners. Leipzig was the most desirable opponent. Uh, they didn't play that well after their restart. They haven't played a competitive match since June 27th. And, and now they're going to go into a game August 13th, having not played a competitive match since June 27th, which is crazy. Six weeks and they don't have Timo Werner. So I think, although, look, it's, it's one game uh, in, a, in an empty stadium, and Atletico aren't really built to stamp their authority on any match. So, so who the heck knows? But I, I would say Atletico are solid favorites. Atletico did deal in the last couple of days with this situation of having two players that tested positive for coronavirus. So they retested everybody. There was some concern that it might have spread. The good news is it didn't. Everybody else tested negative. The two players are Angel Correa and Versalco. And, you know, not to be callous about it, but from a purely footballing perspective, Versalco is no loss at all. He hasn't played since March. He's a non-factor on that team. Correa is a bit of a loss. He's one of their mm -hmm. more uh, explosive players. He started over half their La Liga games this season. So he's a guy they'd like to have. So they're now in confinement. I think they stayed back in Madrid. And I don't know if they're out for this whole thing or if they could potentially get back for later games, but they're definitely out for the Leipzig match. All right. So I'm, I'm agree, I agree with you that Atletico goes through. Yep. Uh, and then the next one would be Bayern uh, Barcelona, which, um, as you said, I mean, there, there was very little doubt Bayern were going to advance, but a big point of interest was to see how they would look after a month layoff. Would there be any rust or would they pick up where they left off? And it was a pick up where they left off scenario. They blew away Chelsea, Lewandowski, two goals, two assists. Um, and so they're going to go to Lisbon now brimming with confidence and I think are the favorites to knock out Barcelona, who uh, did what they had to do against Napoli in that uh, second leg. Weren't overly impressive. I think they did enough that they're feeling better about themselves. But still, uh, you know, and Messi scored a great goal in that game and you could never discount a team with Messi. Uh, but Bayern are the better team here. Uh, one uh, interesting subplot to this one is this battle of German goalkeepers. There's no love lost between Neuer and Ter Stegen. Ter Stegen, in my mind, has become the better of the two over the last couple of years. Neuer is still very good, but Ter Stegen to me is like top three goalkeeper in the world. Uh, but he hasn't gotten much of a sniff with Germany because Neuer is still number one. And, and so there's some friction there. Neuer is a guy who's very protective of his turf, both internationally speaking and at club level where Bayern have signed Nubel and Neuer has already let loose some quotes about like, well, he's not getting any playing time next season. I'm, 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 still, I'm still here and I'm not going anywhere kind of thing. So, so, you know, Neuer is very protective of his turf. And so he's coming up against a guy that's trying to take his job at the international level. So that's fascinating. Um, I don't know. So I, I go Bayern here. What, which way do you go? I mean, I've been, I've been on that Bayern train. I mean, even well before, I just think that they are, they're so good, but oh, man, yeah, I'll stick with Bayern, but real big part of me wants to say that this is where they get tripped up. They're a better team. Bayern's a better team right now than Barcelona. And then finally, uh, August 15th, the last of the quarterfinals is Manchester city, Lyon, which, uh, great respect to Lyon for what they've done and, and getting past Juventus. But, I got a, I hear yeah, a butt I'm coming. To, I'm trying to butter up. <laughs> I'm trying to butter up liquor because you know what's coming here. Um, uh, I mean, this is City all the way. I mean, they they should they should win this uh, no problem. Um, and so that would set up uh, if if it goes the way we just predicted, that would set up Atletico Madrid, Atalanta, and Bayern Munich, Manchester City in the semifinals. Oof. Remember, Oof. this all culminates. All these matches are in Lisbon. This all culminates August 23rd is the final. So that so these these quarterfinals happen all this week. The semifinals would happen at the beginning of next week. 
Yeah, uh, quarterfinals are the 12th through the 15th. Okay. And then the semifinals are the 18th and 19th. Okay. And the final is the 23rd. Is the 23rd a Sunday? Is that uh, what's a 17? Uh, no. uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Something all right. Like all right. So um, anyway, in the next in the next couple of weeks, this will all be over. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think Alex Dow doesn't want us to whip through Europa League very quickly, um, which uh, we can't really talk about these games too much because two of them are occurring today. We're taping this on a Monday morning and two of them are uh, tomorrow. So by the time most people listen to this podcast, these games will have been played. But for what it's worth, uh, they've all Europa League bubble is in Germany. Um, so the two games today are Manchester United against Copenhagen, which is in Cologne, and then a great one, Inter against Leverkusen, which is in Dusseldorf. I can't wait to watch that game as soon as we're done taping. It starts very soon. And then tomorrow will be uh, Shakhtar against Basel in Gelsenkirchen. Um, and then uh, the last one is Wolves Sevilla in uh, Duisburg. And then uh, the United Copenhagen winner faces the Sevilla Wolves winner. Inter Leverkusen winner faces Shakhtar Basel winner. This all culminates uh, August 21st at the Rhein Energy Stadion in Cologne. So, uh, and, and it's a fun field, I, I got to say. I mean, you have the likes of United and Inter and Sevilla. And so there's some potential for some tasty matchups here and, and a, potentially a, a, a great final. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Uh, that is it. Okay. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's move this along uh, right now. When we come back, oh, yeah, Ask Alexi. It's upon us. You know it. You love it. Well, at least you know it. Uh, you use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and uh, we're going to read out some questions. All right. Uh, moving on. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, it's that time again, time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi and you send us in your questions, comments, concern, or Ask Mossy uh, over there on the uh, social media platforms. And uh, we pick a few each week as we did this week. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? Uh, first up, it's not really a question, but Atlas Porter wants us to comment on the fact that uh, League One and League Two, those are the third and fourth divisions in England, uh, have uh, voted to introduce a salary cap. Yes, uh, League One and League Two, as you mentioned, which are the third and fourth. So interestingly named, uh, but you know, it's par for the course. Okay, uh, so the, the salary cap is not anything new in concept, um, and certainly not anything new in concept when it comes to the way that we think about uh, about sports. It's part and parcel to most of our sports, and it is used for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is to create uh, some semblance of parity, um, but it's also used to keep costs down. And uh, it is looked upon in most places in the world, um, and a lot of the soccer leagues out there is not something that, uh, that people want. Um, as is often the case nowadays, some of the stuff that, that people poo-poo or look down on uh, when it comes to what we, we do, and I say we as uh, American sports do, uh, 
secretly, or now we're seeing not so secretly, uh, there are those out there that would advocate for this. And if given the opportunity, would implement some of the things that we do. Uh, I, I think that this, this represents, well, first off, it represents the times and the recognition of doing things relative to the challenging times that we are living in and maybe implementing some things that either secretly, as I said, or even uh, very overtly people have wanted to do and finding that this may be the opportune moment to, to do something like this. Uh, I, it makes complete sense to me. Uh, it provides a level of responsibility and fiscal prudence that I think sometimes is lacking in, uh, in sports. It also immediately, in my estimation, because of what I mentioned, the, you know, the, the way that it creates a, um, a more level play, playing field and more parity immediately makes it that much more uh, interesting. And, and in, a, in a game and in a world where things that we've mentioned earlier in the pod aren't necessarily always fair, it makes it fairer. And therefore, it gives us a better ability to assess teams and assess coaches in particular and, and, and manage managers. And look, if this is something that enables teams to be more self-sufficient and teams to, to be more secure in a very insecure time and age, I think it's, I, I think it's a positive. What do you think, Mossy? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, when you hear the word salary cap, when any kind of European football, it gets your hopes up and imagining what that would look like maybe at the highest levels for those mm -hmm. that are concerned about the super clubs and the gaps that have opened and, and us living in this world where Bayern Munich have won eight Bundesliga titles in a row and Juventus have won nine Serie A titles in a row. Um, but, you know, I, I just think the, the players association is even pushing back against this and they're mad that they weren't consulted and they, they're saying this is uh, unlawful and unenforceable and, and they're, they're going to try to fight this. And I just imagine if they ever tried to introduce this at the highest levels of the game, it'd be a non-starter. I mean, the, the, the super clubs just have so much power that they'd be able to fight against it. So, you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, for people who do but, think that we should wait, have a salary wait. cap, you just hear it associated with any sort of level of European football and it sort of gets you perked up a little bit, but it's a long way from this to, let's say, the, the Premier League or, or La Liga. Okay, but, but to your point, okay, and you mentioned the players' union in this, in this particular scenario – if you were to, and it's a big if, but if you were to get the super clubs to agree to something like this, would the pushback be from, from them that, look, we're going to lose that super club status because everybody else is going to be an equal playing field? Or would the pushback be bigger the way we're seeing right now from a player? And let's be honest, what's happening behind the players? It's, it's the, uh, the agents in that you're deflating salaries and you're therefore limiting the amount of money that, uh, that a player can make. It's probably a combination of, uh, uh, of both of those things. But ultimately, if ownership wants to do something that they feel is proper for their business, they're going to find a way to do it. And I know the, the agents and the players certainly have power and in many places more power than, uh, than other places. But yeah, I mean, it makes, it makes sense to me, although I do feel that the super club phenomenon is an important component of the entertainment and popularity of some of these leagues. And 
to lose that, I think you are shooting yourself in the foot. That, that phenomenon where as many people hate these teams because they win so much as, as love these teams, uh, you know, part of that is the structure of that business and what makes it so interesting. And I, I hesitate to say interesting and compelling, but there is an element of that. And the people's, I think the amount of people that complain about the fact that it's boring and the lack of parity are not, it's not as much as you actually think when it really gets down to it. So I don't know. I don't know if like, like to, to your point, I'm not sure that that could be something that is going to be implemented, but I like the fact that they're thinking about it right now. The premier league made some news too. I have a few things to throw at you there. Okay. All right. So they have voted for next season to go back to the uh, three subs, uh, scrap the five. So uh, much to Sid Lowe's delight and much to your chagrin, I imagine. Oh God, this is so this is so Premier League. This is, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, prim, proper, authentic, genuine, whatever word that you want to use. So we know that the five substitutes came in because of the unique and challenging uh, circumstances that we have right now. And we also know that IFAB uh, enabled leagues to continue it for the next year. And we talked oftentimes on this pod about what may stick even beyond these challenging times. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it once again, separates out English soccer, English football by design. And oftentimes they are the leaders in this space, but I think it puts them on that proverbial island that oftentimes they like to be on, but it would not surprise me in the least if there were those that were on the fence about doing it, that will, because England did it, actually go the opposite way and say, all right, fine, England's gonna do three, we're gonna do five. And then you have a situation where people are playing different forms of the game. The other thing they've done is, um... They've decided they're going to conform uh, to FIFA when it comes to VAR. Uh, FIFA want everybody to employ VAR the same way. The Premier League had chosen to go its own way in, in a few things, and now they're going to conform to the way FIFA wants everything done. And so uh, what does that affect? That means that for all subjective decisions, they want the referee to run over to the monitor and make the decision uh, himself. Uh, previously, referees in the Premier League had been uh, dissuaded from doing that. They wanted as often as possible for them to just trust the VAR officials upstairs because they didn't want to slow down the, the flow of the game. But now they, they, you know, there's been a lot of complaining about that. We've talked about how players and managers, they'd rather have the referee on the field make the decision. And so now the Premier League, they are conforming to that. That's for, more oh, often that's, than not, you're going to see. Oh, I feel so much better, Mossy. This is such pure theater and performance art. Our, our whole world nowadays is about theater and performance art. And look, I talk about performance all the time. But this isn't, <laughs> this is just to make people feel better that, the, that this man or woman has gone over to, uh, to the screen. As I said, it's just the image of that happening that is going to quell the, you know, the fears or the angst uh, or, or some of the criticism that inevitably comes with the call. And in that sense, okay, I get it. You are... Uh, you are giving the people what they want. But as I said, in, in the form of a performance and whether they know it or not, you're just 
you're patting them on the head. So there you go. There's your, there's your dog bone. The other thing too, uh, on penalties, uh, whether a goalkeeper stepped off the line, uh, that is going to now fall under the purview of VAR. Remember, uh, it did everywhere else, but England, they had made a point of saying it wasn't going to fall under VAR. Purview well, this is, well, that's, you know, that part of it is good in that, you know, I just talked earlier about them wanting to be on the island. Uh, and this, you know, this makes them part of, of a much bigger country. And then this one was fascinating to me. There had been calls for the offsides rule for there to be a little bit more leeway there, uh, clear and obvious, that whole deal. And Colina, who's running all this for FIFA, he stepped in and said, no, absolutely not. Uh, offsides is offsides. I don't care if it's by three centimeters. And so they, they've, they've had to accept that. But there is some talk that uh, they're not going to show the lines on television next season because they think that's what's really infuriating fans and seeing the lines and seeing just how uh, ticky tack these offsides decisions are. Yeah. And maybe, you know, the, the less, you know, the better in that regard. And so, uh, what, what do you make of that? Look, I don't know how to say you can't be a little pregnant in Italian. No, no boy, essere, un po', I don't know, pregnant, whatever that is, but that's basically what, what he's saying and good for him. Good for him. I mean, it, it is a, it, it is, it is a slippery slope to, to try to do anything, but, and by the way, if you ever get a chance to see Kalina talk, it is, it is fascinating, mesmerizing, and incredibly enlightening in the way that he talks about the art and the skill of refereeing. And, and he's very, very honest and open about the subjective nature at times and the human part and the human element of this, even in an age where we have so much technology involved. And, and he thinks about this, believe me. And so he doesn't he doesn't speak without having thought about uh, about having thought about things, and you know, in his mind, the way that this shapes out and and looks is very very clear, and he's very definitive on that. And I I love that about him. Uh, all right, next question at Rob Rod underscore thirteen. Does Sancho make Manchester United an instant title contender? Well, it would if uh, <laughs> if he was actually there. But you know, as we are taping this on uh, Monday, August tenth. It, does it look to be off Mossy or is this posturing? What do we, what do we think here? Uh, Cause there's news coming out this morning that, uh, that Dortmund has said, no, nope, it's off. We're not, we're not selling him. We're, we're signing him. They're going to get, he's going to get paid a lot of money and you took too much time and we're thanks, but no thanks. Well, Dortmund uh, began their preseason today. So they had set August 10th as something of a deadline of we want to have this figured out one way or the other by August 10th. So August 10th has arrived and no deal has been agreed upon. So in their view, it's over. Sancho flew out with the rest of the squad today to begin their preseason preparations uh, for, for the upcoming campaign. Uh, Michael Zork, their sporting director said, you know, th th for us, this is a closed matter and he's going to be with us next season. There's still this suspicion that United are going to end up budging here and paying what Dortmund had been asking for. Um, I have to say though, um, the, 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 the English media's coverage of this whole thing uh, has been, you've, you've kind of seen that, that, that sort of arrogant side of, of, of the, the English media that comes out sometimes. And, and it, the, the whole tone of it has been like, why are Dortmund making this so complicated? And, and talking about how United aren't going to be bullied into this deal. And it, it's just so funny to me for a player who's under contract with Dortmund for another three years, and they've set an asking price. And if you... Uh, meet our asking price, you can have them. If not, then we're going to keep them. I mean, and, and I, I don't know, you know, it's like, it's, it's, that's how a normal negotiation works. And just the, the tone of the English media's coverage, I think, you know, a couple of things. 
there's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding in general about Dortmund as a club. Um, Dortmund are a, now they've been hit uh, by this pandemic like everybody else, but generally speaking, they are a pretty wealthy club. They're the second biggest club in Germany. They have some big sponsorship deals. They play in an 80,000 seat stadium that's sold out every week. They have money in a perfect world. They would hold on to all their guys and try to go toe to toe with Bayern, but uh, they've come to accept that players don't view Dortmund as a destination. They view it as a stepping stone club. They learned that the hard way with Robert Lewandowski leaving for free to go to Bayern. And so they've had to adjust their transfer, transfer strategy accordingly uh, and decided that's never going to happen again. And, and, and they're going to accept being something of a selling club, but they're still able to do it on their terms and generally get the sort of money they want for players. They sold Dembele to Barcelona for over a hundred million euros. Um, they sold Pulisic to Chelsea for 65 million euros, which frankly, the way he played this season, they might've undersold them. But at the time we all thought that was a very good price to get for Pulisic, a guy who wasn't even like a regular starter for them. Um, even Aubameyang, who was getting up there in age and his contract was running out and he wanted to leave, they still were able to get 60 million euros from Arsenal for him. And they now have these two, they're sitting on these two like lottery tickets in Sancho and Holland. They view both as like a hundred million euro players, which I agree with them on that. And the only question was, well, during this pandemic, would they be so hard up for money that they would sell them at a discount? And they made it clear from the beginning, no, uh, we're sticking to our original valuation of Sancho. And if you're willing to pay that much, you can have him. If not, we'll just hold on to him for another season and hope that by next summer, things are quote unquote back to normal and somebody will pay the money we're asking for. And United, understandably so during this pandemic said, well, that's not a, a amount of money we can afford to pay for a player. At least that's what they've said so far. We'll see if they budge on that. But so this is a normal negotiation to me. And if a deal doesn't come off, it doesn't come off. And yet the tone of the English media is like as if Dortmund are doing something wrong here by, by sticking to their valuation. And, 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 you know, like I said, why are you making this so complicated? You're Dortmund. You're supposed to be selling players to Manchester United. That's how things work. And I don't know. It's, it's really rubbed me the wrong way. Well, I mean, in any deal or any good deal or any good dealer, the, you know, age-old wisdom is that you have to be willing to walk away. So... Does somebody blink here? I mean, is this is this posturing? Is this you know just good deal making and uh, and leverage that uh, that Borussia Dortmund is using? The question would be Sancho. Um, I think in a perfect world, he he would like this deal to to happen for him to go to Manchester United. But he's he's so far he's indicated that if it doesn't happen, he's fine going back to Dortmund. Uh, Dembele eventually left Dortmund. They weren't ready to sell him yet when they did. Um, but he like went on strike and refused to play and train and, and made a big enough fuss about it. So players do have that power. They can, they can make it an untenable situation at their current club where sometimes the club bends and says, you know what, let's, let's just cut our losses and get this guy out of here if he doesn't want to be here that badly. Um, and, and like I said, they still were able to get an amazing price for, for uh, Dembele when he went to Barcelona. So I suppose if Sancho wanted to take it that route, he could force a deal here, but there's no indication so far that that's going to happen. So if he's willing to stick it out at Dortmund for another season and they're, you know, they're not a club, like I said, that needs the money to keep the lights on. Sure. You know, who wouldn't want a hundred million euros coming into the coffers, but if it's not the right deal for them, they, they can, they're fine holding on. All to right. Well, years. come on. Yes or no. Does it get done? Uh, Dortmund won't budge. If, if United say the heck with it, we'll pay what you're asking for. Then it gets done. But it, how, it, how many times do I have to ask this question? So does United budge and pay the money? Uh, I'd lean no, I think. All right. So August 10th, David Mossy says that Sancho deal does not get done here in the next. Which means by the time this podcast drops, he'll be (laughs) with a Manchester United jersey at a press conference. All right. Uh, what else, Mossy? Uh, and then we'll end on this. Uh, 
Interesting timing for Alex Dow to, to choose this question. Uh, the man hasn't played in a month, but I guess we're going here. Uh, at Blue Rail 53, you think the Galaxy signing Chicharito was a mistake? Uh, well, it's, it's not. I mean, it's, it's good timing in that everybody's coming back, and certainly uh, our Trafico uh, is, I guess, going to feature him. Uh, but to your, to your question and to your point here, was it, was it the right signing? Yeah, it was absolutely the right signing in that the Galaxy has fashioned themselves over the years, um, maybe more so than any MLS team, as, I'll say it, the super club, and a club that is going to go out and spend big money on big names and bring stars to a town that is filled with stars and then a town that expects stars in Los Angeles. And, you know, the... The Q rating and the notoriety uh, and the fame that is associated with someone like Chicharito is reserved for him and very few others. That he has come in and not been the player that you wanted him to be or you thought that he could be, that, that doesn't mean that you don't sign him. As long as you knew that this was... The, this was happening. That's where I don't know because I'm not in the I'm not in the locker room. But you had to have known that he is a very specific type of player. He does not own the game in the way that Zlatan owns the game. And yes, he's coming in after Zlatan, and we've said time and time again, it is fair if you're coming on the heels of Zlatan to compare and contrast, even though he's a very different player, he's not going to own the game. He doesn't do things individually in the way that Zlatan does. And by the way, that, that holds true, whether he's in shape or not, that holds true, you know, whether he is at the top of his form or not, but he has scored goals and he will, uh, he will continue to score goals. Does it, does it look like that this, this is going to cause more problems uh, and they're going to have to solve these problems? Yeah, but these problems should have been anticipated. And that's why I say that this was still the right signing to make. Who else out there brings what he brings? You know, nobody. In terms of the notoriety, like I said, and the, um, you know, the attractiveness of a big name player and checks those boxes. And by the way, he has for a number of years. This has been kind of that holy grail of, of a signing. But it doesn't matter how good you are. You bring him into a, at best, mediocre Los Angeles galaxy at this point, and you bring him in and he is at best mediocre relative to where he can be. You know, that's, that's a recipe for, uh, for disaster, maybe even... Uh, well, definitely a recipe for problems, maybe even a recipe for, uh, uh, for disaster. But I still think that it was, it was the right thing to do. And because it's specific to the Galaxy, it was the signing that the Galaxy had to do. And that's just because of who they have made themselves into, uh, who, they, you know, who, they have made, who they have made themselves into being on a consistent basis. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. This league needs someone like the Galaxy. But it means that, when these things come along, you're almost, you're expected and forced to do some of these things. So yes, that's a long answer to your question, but the answer is yes.
this was the right signing. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, we come to the end of yet another, shall we say, a long and extended State of the Union. You get some more bonus State of the Union uh, content out there, but you know, what's time in these days? Time, days, you know, doesn't doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, but at the end of each and every pod, I give you a little one for the road. And I was thinking back to, you know, we, we started off talking about this, this summer that we are in. You know, I can look out my window and see beautiful sunshine. And I think of, you know, what summer in normal time entails for, uh, you know, for kids. And I think back to my childhood and I think back to playing soccer. And summer for me uh, was still very much about soccer and it revolved around soccer. And I know that, you know, nowadays the, uh, the debate and the problems associated with youth soccer and the cost involved and the travel involved, you know, that the travel part of it, for me, summer was when I actually traveled, if at all, when it came to soccer. And I remember back to summer of what would have been 1986, I was 15 going on 16 years old. And our big, I was playing travel soccer back then, and our big travel part of that uh, experience happened in the summer. And we went to Colorado. I was playing in Michigan, and we went to Colorado for the Pikes Peak Invitational. Uh, And, you know, one of these massive type of tournaments that happened. And... And that is not going to happen this summer for the majority and almost all. Like, I haven't met anybody yet that is playing in the same way or certainly traveling in the same way. And that might not happen for a long time. But it was a special thing back then. Traveling happens a whole lot more now. But for us, it was a special thing. It, and I associate with summer was having that one big trip from a soccer perspective, usually to a, one of these massive tournaments where you play game after game after game. And this one was uh, to Colorado. The special part of that uh, was that that was, as you know, 1986 was a World Cup year. And I vividly remember being in the lobby of the Holiday Inn Hotel in Boulder, Colorado, and watching Diego Maradona light it up. And it was my first experience watching a World Cup and what an experience it was. They set up a television in the lobby of the, uh, the Holiday Inn and all of the different teams, including my team and all the teams from all around the country that were there, congregated each and every day when we weren't playing uh, to watch the proceedings that were, uh, were going on. And, you know, that type of youth soccer experience, I recognize I was very fortunate and privileged to be able to, to be able to do that. And for a lot of kids, they are not going to have those, those types of memories and those types of experiences. Hopefully in the future, they return in some form, uh, form or another, because they, they do create memories that go well beyond the actual kicking of the, of the ball. And, you know, that's why sports are important in terms of your inner, your social interaction and your social development and the lessons that are learned and the experiences that you have that go well beyond the actual kicking, kicking of the ball. And they will stay with you. And, you know, this, this memory and this experience has stayed with me my entire, 
my entire life. I don't remember if we won or lost. I don't remember if I scored goals, if I played well, but I do remember that sense of community and camaraderie of not just my team, but being introduced and meeting players and teams from all over. And what brought us together was obviously this tournament, but even more so the connection that we had watching for many of us, our first world cup. And, you know, that I would go on and then play in world cups was not something I knew at that, you know, age of 15 or 16, but uh, it saddens me uh, that, you know, a whole generation now is not getting to have those types of experiences right now because of the challenges that we are going through. Uh, having said that, uh, we are a resilient bunch, uh, both as humans and as soccer, soccer playing humans, and in particular as American soccer playing humans. And we will, uh, we will find ways to try to replace those types of experiences. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we will come out of this at some point in the near future and return to having some of those experiences because they can be, they can be incredible. Uh, all right, Mossy, anything uh, before we go? That is it. All right, lots of soccer to watch uh, this week. And as we said, the return of Major League Soccer to the uh, in-market Champions League, uh, the final on Tuesday on ESPN of MLS is back, Orlando versus Portland. So we will have a champion. We will have a, uh, a, uh, you know, a, a moment with the confetti and the trophy and the million dollars and the Champions League, CONCACAF Champions League spot, all of that kind of stuff being bestowed on either Portland or, uh, or Orlando. All right. Thanks so much for uh, listening in each and every week. We appreciate you downloading and uh, reviewing and subscribing and rating and doing all those different things on all the different platforms that we have out there. We thank you for listening. We thank you for watching. And we will see and talk to you again next week on the State of the Union pod. And as always, size the day. <laughs>